Ask anyone familiar with science fiction tropes what an extraterrestrial life form looks like, and you'll get a stock answer. A bipedal, upright, bilaterally symmetrical being that may sprout unusual appendages or have an abnormally large bald head, but generally takes a humanoid form. Think for a minute, though, about the dizzying variety life takes on this planet, from oak trees to octopi to fungi to deep-sea tube worms. Now, imagine a life form evolving on a completely different planet with a completely different natural history. Would we even recognize such a being as alive? A new interdisciplinary research center at the University of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Center for Origins, seeks to answer the question of what both extraterrestrial and early terrestrial life might look like, and to help in the search for such life elsewhere in the solar system and the universe. Susanna Whittakus Weaver is the Vatsa Professor of Chemistry and Astronomy and one of the founding members at the Wisconsin Center for Origins. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Thomas Beattie is an assistant professor of astronomy at the University of Wisconsin. Thomas also joins us now by phone. Welcome, Thomas. Happy to be here, Brian. How do we recognize life? What is our definition of life? What, what would make us believe that something that evolved on another planet would be recognizable to us at all as something alive? Susanna? Um, so the first step in hunting for life is to hunt for worlds that are habitable. And NASA's, NASA's definition of habitable is that there's liquid water at the surface of the planet. Um, so first we look for water. And then from there, we look for signs of life as we know it on Earth. Um, so if you looked at Earth's atmosphere from afar, you would see oxygen, ozone, methane gas, um, and several other things that are not seen in the atmospheres of the other planets in our solar system. So that's the first step. Um, beyond that, then, I mean, life could take various different forms, and it may not even be constrained to the chemistry that we see on Earth. It may be a completely different basis for life elsewhere in the universe, but we have to start with what we know. Um, and so we start by kind of imposing the rules of how life operates on Earth to try to constrain where it might be elsewhere in the universe. There may be life elsewhere that's, you know, bacterial in nature that we have a hard time detecting. <laughs> um, there may be advanced civilizations that have similar sorts of signatures on their planet to what we have here on ours through things like radio broadcasts, television broadcasts, communications, um, space exploration, and things like that. So we really have to keep an open mind as to what we look for. Um, and then part of our team is actually coming at this from the biology perspective. And if we know something about the planet, and the temperature and the pressure and the atmospheric composition, what kind of life might live there? And so those are, you know, the two ends of this question. If we impose Earth-like limits, where might we find it elsewhere in the universe? And then if we find a planet and we know something about it, what does that tell us about what might be there? Now, Thomas, you talked a little bit about some of your work on the Webb telescope. Um, how do we detect something like, like life if we're looking at something that's hundreds of light years away? I mean, how, what, what signatures are we looking for that would indicate that? And how do we detect it at this distance? So that's a very interesting question, Brian. So the, the key thing to realize when we're looking at these planets is we can't actually see them. We never actually see the planets directly. What we see instead, and the main way we're thinking about doing this, is when the planet 
uh, some planets from our vantage point on Earth pass in front of the star they're going around. And when that happens, the starlight is filtered through the atmosphere. And we can see with our telescopes here on Earth or in orbit, we can see that filtering. So that allows us to measure what's in the atmosphere. And so that's the game is we want to look, uh, you know, using uh, all these telescopes at these small planets like Earth passing in front of their stars and measure their atmospheres that way. And that's how we figure it out. Now, this idea of determining the chemical composition of something by the light that shines through it, that's actually a really old technology, isn't it? I mean, even though we're using sophisticated equipment to do that, this idea of spectrography uh, dates back till what, the Victorian era, doesn't it? Uh, that's right. Yeah. The actually modern astrophysics began with the invention of spectroscopy back in the late uh, 1800s. So we are using a technique that uh, 150 years ago, fundamentally astronomers would have understood and they would have understood what we were doing. The, the difference today is that one, we've now found over 5,000 other planets in the galaxy. So we know where to look. That's a big part of this. We're not just doing a blind search. And we now have uh, both uh, the tools, the cameras and the techniques that allow us to measure those signals precisely enough to feasibly think about doing this. So what are some likely prospects out there? What have we, what, what does the current science suggest? Are there places out there somewhere in the universe that seem particularly promising as uh, homes to some form of life, Susanna? So we certainly see many, many different areas of space that have a lot of water. So that's very encouraging. We, we can follow the water trail all the way from a cloud to a star to a solar system to a planet, and we see water in many places in the universe. Um, beyond that, we're just at the tip of the iceberg and understanding these kind of what Thomas looks for, biosignatures and exoplanet atmospheres, things that might indicate there's life on that planet. Um, really with the implementation of the Webb telescope, that's opened up that door. So I don't know if Thomas wants to say something more about the sorts of things you're looking for. Every time Thomas gets new results, I peek at his laptop and meetings and try to see what he's up to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, most of what we've looked at so far, interestingly enough, has not been anything like the Earth. It's all been giant planets because those are the easiest to do. So the really exciting thing about Webb is finally we can get going on these smaller planets that we weren't able to really measure their atmospheres on. Um, there is... a in the astronomy community, a well-known system called TRAPPIST-1, which is a sequence of Earth-sized planets around a very small star that a lot of people are looking at. Um, I was a part of a team that looked at the innermost planet. And unfortunately, that one uh, looks like it's just a bare hot rock, uh, you know, probably 300 degrees hotter than the Earth with no atmosphere, which uh, we sort of expected, but there was always the chance we'd get something good. Um, and other than that, uh, we're really thinking actually at YCOR, at the at the center we're thinking uh, about other things that are not maybe exactly like the earth but could feasibly you know support life like giant super earths or sub neptunes that have liquid water oceans with hydrogen atmospheres instead of oxygen so really trying to think about other environments that could work but maybe aren't the conventional ones you think of off the top of your head now, a, a few years ago, a number of years ago, I mean, the idea of searching for extraterrestrial life uh, was sort of a, um, I, I don't want to say a cottage industry, or but it was it was somewhat to the side of sort of mainstream science. Uh, and do you find now that this is be, that as 
you know, things like web have started to show the potential of searching for this, if this has become a more accepted uh, part of uh, astronomical research, or, or is it still seen as a little bit weird? Susanna? No, it's absolutely mainstream astronomy at this point. Exoplanets, we're, we're in the middle of the exoplanet revolution and astronomy research. Um, we just didn't have the technical capabilities to study these objects before, and now we do. So um, I wouldn't say that any of us are necessarily looking for, you know, advanced civilization signatures, maybe, maybe someday. Um, but we're certainly thinking about which planets might be habitable and how the chemistry might happen to lead to life on those planets. And then very carefully taking a look at the planets that we know and seeing what is testable with the information that we have right now. So I'd say it's cautiously optimistic. We all feel like we have the tools in place to be able to really advance the field. But like Thomas said, it's a really interdisciplinary effort where we need to bring everybody to the table and share all the skills that we have to be able to answer this question. And one of the things that seems to have changed in people's estimation of uh, the origins of life is that, um, you know, when, when I was being taught in high school and, and undergrad, the idea was that, that it was a, like, one in a gazillion chance that life would actually occur under those conditions. But we're starting to find that that's not so. And as a chemist, Susanna, tell us, what do we know about the chemistry of early life now? Um, we know that life arose pretty quickly on early Earth. We know that it was a really harsh, inhospitable environment at the beginning, very hot, um, not a lot of condensed water. Um, but there were a lot of molecules delivered to early Earth from the stuff that made up our solar system. And so the ingredients were there. And if you look at the geological record, it was not a lot of time in terms of Earth's history after things cooled down and you had, you know, um, continents starting to form and you had liquid oceans that life arose in some form. And from there, the evolutionary biology just took off. And so we actually have a member of our team, Batul Kachar, who's looking at how early earth life might've arisen from a, a kind of, you know, biology perspective, evolutionary perspective. And she's trying to understand, given the conditions we know were on early earth, how might that evolution have occurred? How did we go from the first single celled organism to humans? <laughs> um, and so, you know, it brings together again, the geoscientists, the oceanographers, the chemists, the biologists were all, you know, looking at these different aspects of the same puzzle and trying to piece together how this might have happened. So talk a little bit more about the interdisciplinary nature of this. I mean, one of the things about academia is people tend to get a little siloed and they get, you know, work on their own research and, and the ability to collaborate with people in, in other disciplines is often limited. How is uh, the Wisconsin Center for Origins trying to combat that? We need to get everybody together to be able to solve this problem. We're not going to be able to figure it out with just an astronomer or just a biologist or just a geologist. Um, and I think uh, one of the really unique, unique things about what the university is setting up and what Susanna's um, trying to set up is this focus on creating a real place where people will come and actually work together and not just it's so easy with these sorts of things for everybody to join it and then never leave their offices. And I think there's a real focus and a real consciousness of getting people to just be in the same room, you know, and talk to each other and learn how we talk about things and work on things together. Like I, I'm already writing a proposal with somebody in oceanography that I would not be doing if it wasn't for 
uh, Y core. So it's it's already uh, even though the center hasn't started, it's already started working. Susanna, tell us about where you see Y core going and why that interdisciplinary approach is so important to you. Well, this is what actually drew me to Wisconsin. So I could see the idea of building this team and doing something really unique. No other school in the country, people have groups that work on exoplanets or groups that work on astrobiology, but no one really has a group that's this interdisciplinary that spans the whole field and goes all the way from, you know, fundamental astrophysics all the way to evolutionary biology with people with expertise all the way across that range. So we'll have meeting rooms, we'll have breakout rooms, we'll have huddle rooms, we can write proposals together, we can bring students together to give presentations, we'll have weekly team meetings. But we're seeing this even before the center starts, or we have the physical space, this team is getting together and discussing new papers and writing research proposals and bringing our students along and talking science, even without a physical location to go to. We just find a conference room somewhere on campus and we meet up. Um, and so it's really grown organically out of the enthusiasm of the group. And that's a really exciting thing to see everyone so engaged and, and involved in the process and really just there for the science. So if we do get a uh, extraterrestrial visitor uh, to this planet, they'll know exactly where to go, right? <laughs> there are actually protocols in place as to what we will do if that happens. And I'm not involved in that at all. <laughs> and uh, Thomas, you know, you, you talk about looking at you know, these planets that are um, hundreds of light years or thousands of light years away. So in fact, we're looking at the past. We're not looking at what might be happening now, but what happened hundreds of millions of years ago in some cases, right? That's true. Most of the most of the planets that we're thinking about looking about are, you know, 100 or 200 or 300 light years away. So you're exactly right. The light that we are receiving today left those planets 300 years ago. And um, I mean, it is, I will admit to you, Brian, I think I went into astronomy uh, as a young kid, really because I watched too much Star Trek growing up. <laughs> and what I actually want to do is be able to find one of these things and go there. But uh, in lieu of that, I think finding them uh, is probably the next best thing. Uh, so uh, you're right. They're very far away. It's going to be very difficult, uh, if not impossible, to get to. But it would be very exciting to know that it's there. Now, no, not all of these uh, plant potential sites for extraterrestrial life are that far away. The uh, uh, NASA Europa mission is looking at uh, surface water there. So... Um, is there a potential of possibly visiting some life within our own solar system? That's true. We could go to Europa. I'll get, I'll try and get myself on the list. Sign me up. <laughs> All right. We've been speaking with uh, astrochemist Susanna Whittakus Weaver and uh, professor, assistant professor of astronomy Thomas Beattie of the brand new Wisconsin Center for Origins. To find out more about the center's research, you can go to astrobio.wisc.edu. Susanna, Thomas, thank you both for joining us on the 8 o'clock bus. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. thanks, Brian.